This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm honored to be here around such a special event and the start of a special week here on campus. We have a lot going on, right? It's, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm relatively new around here, and to be around March Madness and all the excitement that goes with that um, is really special. It's unique for me. It's my first time going through it. But so is this. And, and to have an event like this on such an important topic, on such an important issue, and to see all of you show up for it at the start of a very busy week, I think is, it, it's uh, reflective of Villanova. It's reflective of this Augustinian University. It's reflective of how um, much service of others means to you. I know in this process, in bringing this week to campus, uh, my eyes were really opened. Allison and I shared a number of conversations about this, and I didn't understand how close this hit to home. And I know our two speakers will bring that to light tonight for you. And if anything, what I've learned about Villanova over the six months is that when Villanova recognizes an issue, it attacks an issue. And, and in all the right ways. I've been blown away. Um, one of our standards here in our athletic department, you guys have heard me say this, you athletes that are in the room, is that we want to graduate complete student athletes. You guys all graduate and do well in school, but when we, we talk about complete student athletes, that has to tie to the mission of the university and, and what it means to be a part of this special culture. And you guys do that. I don't have to push that message home, whether that's hunger and homelessness, whether it's the Special Olympics, whether it's the MLK Day of of service and on and on and on all the work that you guys do with with the campus and with Allison it just blows me away and, and really again what it's reflective of is that when you come to Villanova it's not a four-year decision it's a lifetime decision so what you recognize here uh, tonight by being a part of this and being, being a come being a part of the awareness around this issue is something you're gonna take with you for the rest of your life and I'm, I'm really proud to be associated with all of you so uh, Allison is going to come up and, and introduce our speakers to you, but I, I thank you all for being here and uh, enjoy the evening. Okay, um, our first speaker tonight is a uh, human rights activist, a pioneer for racial equality, internationally recognized expert on sports issues, scholar and author, Dr. Richard E. Lapchick. He's often described as the racial conscience of sport. He brought his commitment to equality and his belief that sport can be an effective instrument of positive social change to the University of Central Florida, where he accepted an endowed chair um, in August of 2001 to lead the DeVos Sports Business Management Program. Dr. Lapchick is a regular columnist for ESPN.com and Sports Business Journal. He's written 16 books, has given over 2,800 public speeches, he um, was named one of the 100 most powerful people in sport, and he was one of the 200 guests personally invited by Nelson Mandela to his inauguration after leading the American sports boycott of South Africa in 1975 until the end of the apartheid. Tonight, Dr. Lapchik is here with us as the founder and president of the National Consortium for Academics and Sports, which Villanova Athletics is a member institution of. We are very honored to have Dr. Lapchik with us this evening, and before he speaks, please direct your attention to the screen for a short introduction video. Richard grew up in a family where there was a strong tradition of doing the right thing. His father was an iconic figure. He 
signs the order clifted to the Knicks, breaking the color barrier. His recollections alone of being around his father growing up would fill a dinner table conversation with great tales, meeting Jackie Robinson. He was a kid, seeing what his father went through for feeling the first black player in, in Nick history. Joe was someone who, as a coach, never let race get in the way of doing the right thing. And there's no question that that had a huge impact on Richard himself. When I was 14, I was at a basketball camp five of the white guys, and one of the white guys was hurling the N-word, the black guy, day in, day out, to my challenge him. This guy could not be on hold, but the black guy was Korean Abdul Jabbar, and then we all send a lifelong friendship throughout that. Everything Richard has fought for has not been popular at the time. And he has been this courageous life, as he said, this seems to be said, this seems to be heard, and I'm going to say it. There's a fine line sometimes between um, being courageous and putting your life on the line. With progress comes pain. And that was the price that he, he was willing to pay. When I was the American leader of the sports book out of South Africa, I was actually attacked in my office in the college library by two masked men that had the N-word carved in my stomach. Richard had very bravely spoken out against the apartheid. There were risks involved. There were just a lot of bigots who didn't like what he had to say. He was attacked for standing up and wanting to right or wrong. And to be brutally attacked as he was, to have the inward carved with scissors into his stomach, he had to have been frightened beyond words. And a lesser person would have said, okay, that's it, I'm done. Not rich. They did that. Um, it's the wrong person. I've been involved in civil rights for the last 28 years of my life, but I can never, ever, ever know what it's like to be black. That's an instantaneous, every minute sense that society has given the black communities and Hispanic communities in this country that discrimination can take place at any time. My dad taught me that a leader is somebody who stands up for justice and doesn't block its path. I've spent most of my adult life trying to help young people who live in crises that have become more profound as the generations have gone on. Players are in the forefront of the whole sports and using that to
come from a basketball family. I'm a big East guy. My dad was the basketball coach at St. John's for 20 years, back in the day when St. John's used to win national championships. Uh, but I'm excited to be here because hopefully you know this, but one of the things that makes me proud of Villanova is not only uh, the great quality of your sports team, but Villanova has a 9.88 APR rate for their basketball team. It's higher than any of the other four teams that are the seeded teams. We have a 100% graduation rate. The other seeded teams have graduation rates, just so you know, of 80, 64, and 50% versus yours with 100%. So I think obviously you should be really proud not only of the quality of play, but of who you are off the court as well. It's a joy for me to be here with Emily Pasnak-Lapchik, my teammate uh, from the U.S. Fund. Uh, we're both going to be rooting for Villanova for the next several weeks as you march through the tournament. My intention today is to challenge you as leaders at Villanova to take up social justice issues, as Mark laid out as part of the mission of Villanova University, with a particular emphasis, but not a singular emphasis, on human trafficking. I'm going to talk about who do we listen to, who are our voices, and the issue of diversity and inclusion. You can see uh, that I've been involved in it for quite a long time. My immersion in diversity and inclusion started when I was a five-year-old boy. You saw that my dad signed Nat Sweetwater Clifton as the first African-American player in the history of the NBA. That was 1950. I was five years old. And I looked outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York, and saw my dad's image swinging from, from a tree with people under the tree picketing. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant when I would listen to calls on the extension at home, extension phone at home, with racial epithet after racial epithet being hurled at my dad. Only later would I find out it was about him signing Nat Sweetwater Clifton. And there were a lot of people in 1950 who were unhappy that an African American was going to be playing in the NBA, a league that's now nearly 80% African American. But in 1950, uh, this was a breakthrough moment for the league. Uh, I was lucky enough to find uh, at this summer camp that you saw in the video, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and my dad simultaneously had recruited an All-American high school basketball player named Leroy Ellis from St. John's. He played, was four-time All-American at St. John's, played in the league for 14 years. But suddenly, as a 14-year-old boy from this almost all-white enclave of Yonkers, New York, I had these two young African-American urban males to help me see what racism was doing in our country. Uh, a privilege for me to be able to understand that the life I was growing up in was far different from the life so many other people were ha having to grow up in because of racism. You saw later uh, what happened in, in South Africa, or with South Africa and my involvement there. But I just want to bring you into the sports world for this year and what having a diverse uh, staff can mean to an organization. Take the National Football League after the Ray Rice incident. I think the, the best PR machine in professional sport, the NFL, bungled week after week in handling the Ray Rice story. Instead of Roger Goodell getting up there and saying that in my nine years as the commissioner, we've had 54 NFL players accused of sexual assault. In that time period, 8.1 million American women were battered, 8.1 million Sorry, 11.3 million American women were battered. 8.1 million were raped. Yes, we have a problem in the NFL, but it is not the problem of gender violence in America. It's a problem that we're going to help address. He didn't say that because he didn't have senior women in the administration of the NFL to counsel him that this would have been a good outcome. Almost at the same time, Donald Sterling's tape 
the owner of the, the Los Angeles Clippers is released on a, late on a Friday night, early on a Saturday morning. On Tuesday morning, Adam Silver takes the stage and the podium for the NBA and says, this man can no longer be an owner in our league. He said, we will not tolerate anyone in our league, even an owner, who stands for the racism that was displayed in, in that tape. Adam Silver had a diverse pool of men and, excuse me, of women and people of color in the NBA league office who could counsel him, him on what might be the best thing for the league and the NBA. It's why I say to you to listen to the voices around you and you're gonna be better served in that process. My journey on the, has been on the issue of race and sport, but my dad taught me that it's not just about race. I had women in my life who I listened to who helped me understand gender issues better from my sister who was a high school girl. Uh, I remember her crying through the night. Uh, I was much younger than she's, I'm 70, she's 82. And uh, she, when I finally asked her what it was about, is her, her fellow high school students had chosen her as best looking and best athlete. This is early 1950s, and she was crying because she wanted to choose best athlete. But this is 20 years before Title IX, there was no way she could do that. So instead she chose best looking, happened to become a successful model, but that's not what she wanted to do. She wanted to follow on my dad's footsteps. My dad, by the way, is a triple inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player for the original Celtics, as a coach of the Knicks and St. John's University, and as a member of a team called the original Celtics. So we all thought in our family that sooner or later we would end up playing in the NBA. My dad also told me about uh, the, his owner in 1930 when the Celtics uh, were disbanded, the league was disbanded because of the Depression, the Celtics regathered in Cleveland as a barnstorming team. Their owner was a woman named Kate Smith, and he always said that Kate Smith was, by the way, a Philadelphia person. She was a famous singer uh, at, at that time in the 30s and even later than that. My dad always said that the best person he ever worked for was Kate Smith. Kate Smith was an owner of a, of a men's team in 1930. There wouldn't be another woman be, be the owner of a men's team until the 1990s. That's how pioneering Kate Smith was at the time. Things have gotten better for women, but obviously they're still not right. One of the most influential books that I've read is called Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Rudun. And it has a lot of startling stories and statistics about the oppression of women worldwide as well as women fighting to, to gain their rights. But two of the statistics that stick with me more than any other are the fact that there were more women and girls killed in acts of gendercide simply because they were a woman or a girl in the second half of the 20th century than all the soldiers who died in the entire 20th century combined. That in any decade of the 20th century, there were more women and girls killed in acts of gendercide simply because there were women and girls than all the acts of genocide that took place in the 20th century. That's not to minimize the loss of soldiers and the loss of people who, acted, acted, who died in acts of gen genocide, but to emphasize how fragile the lives of women can be. Every day I wake up and I think of the 32 million schoolgirls around the globe who won't go to school that day even though they're school age because it's either against the custom of the, or the law of that land that they can get an education. It's why this wonder girl, Malala, won the Nobel Peace Prize because she risked her life to try to fight so those girls could have the opportunity to get an education. 150 million women, we talk about control of your body as being one of the leading issues in the feminist movement today. 150 million women and girls around the world don't have access to contraception because it's either against the customs or the laws of that particular land. More than 120 million women have experienced what's called female genital mutilation. If you don't know what that is, it means that the female genitalia 
have been surgically, surgically altered for non-medical reasons, because of cultural reasons. This is something that's obviously a, a significant issue. More women and girls between the ages of 15 and 44 worldwide die or are maimed by male violence than because of cancer, malaria, war, and traffic accidents combined. So I had an opportunity to listen to the voices of women in 1978. What the video told you is that I was attacked uh, because of my uh, position on the anti-apartheid movement. If you don't know what apartheid was, it was the most, South Africa had the most racist system of government, it was called apartheid. In the second half of the 20th century, the global community came together to boycott South Africa. I was involved in the sports boycott of South Africa. There are other kinds of boycotts as well. But um, after the, and, and we were protesting a, a Davis Cup South African team that was coming in 1978. That was the issue that people attacked me for. So I was in the hospital for four days, came out, came home, and there were about 25 friends and supporters who had flown in from around the country. And one of the friends in, in the house was a neighbor who was an attorney. And I took a call from the Nashville Afternoon newspaper, and they told me that there was a page one story, and then it's called the Nashville, was called the Nashville Banner, saying that I had self-inflicted, that the local police thought I had self-inflicted these wounds, that I had done this to myself, either for publicity for the cause or for personal publicity. So my friend who was the attorney said, we better go down and talk to the detective in charge of the investigation, which we did the next day, and he said, that, listen, I believe the attack took place the way you said it did, but there are people on the force uh, that think you did this to yourself. Why don't you take a lie detector test? And by the way, the first thing he said was, uh, we didn't leak that story to the press, but obviously they had. Uh, so in asking me to take a lie detector, because I ha have been a student of the civil rights movement as well as an activist in the civil rights movement, I said to him, it's unlikely that I would agree to take it, but I would ask all the leaders in the civil rights movement who were in our coalition what they thought I should do, and if they thought it was in the best interest of what we were trying to accomplish in the anti-apartheid movement, that I would agree. That night I talked to all those leaders, and they all to a person said, absolutely refuse to take it based on principle. And I reflected that night and thought to myself, this was the first time that I had some understanding of what it must be like to be a woman who had been sexually assaulted and be asked to prove that she had been sexually assaulted. At this particular era, women were routinely asked to take lie detectors tests. Even to this day, uh, women are often asked to somehow physically prove, if they report a sexual assault, uh, that, they, that they had been assaulted. That's why one, only one out of three women will actually report a sexual assault today, because they're afraid of the, what the police, or how the police might handle it. In the six weeks after that story was released that I wasn't going to take a lie detector, and I told the reporter what I just said about the women and, and sexual assault, assault, and he reported that as part of the story, I received something like 150 letters and phone calls from women around the country who had been raped, thanking me as a man for, for saying that at this particular time. And about 15 years later, I was approached by a former football player who was a graduate student at Harvard and asked me to start a program on the issue of men's violence against women. And I literally, in the back of my head, heard the voices of those 150 women telling me that this is the right thing, that you have to do that. And we started what's now probably the largest, not probably, it's the largest gender violence program in the country using athletes as the trainers. Uh, they've done a lot of work in the Big East over the years. They might have been at Villanova at various points. But it was because I was listening to those voices. I listened to the voices of young people. You're about to meet, after I speak, Emily Pasnak lapchik who, when she was in college, uh, came home and told my wife, my wife Anne and I uh, 
about the issue of human trafficking and how passionately she felt about it. We barely knew about anything about human trafficking that Emily began to teach us over the years and make us want to get involved in whatever small way we could. And sooner or later, Emily ends up as uh, a representative at the US Fund for UNICEF, where she's now heads up their end trafficking program. And we were able to form a partnership to create this program called Shut Out Trafficking. It was because I was listening to the voice of this extraordinary person uh, who we're so proud of. And I'll talk a little bit about human trafficking, a lot more, but Emily's going to, that's going to be the focus of her presentation. I listen to older people. So I'm not an angry person. I have been angry maybe five times, a handful of times in my life. One of the times I was angry was in the week after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. I was angry that the federal government, the state government, and the local governments were doing nothing to remove the 100,000 people stranded in the Superdome and Convention Center. People who were overwhelmingly African-American and overwhelmingly poor. I don't have any doubt that if those were 100,000 white people there, they would have been out by Tuesday, by Tuesday afternoon. But nothing was happening until, until CNN put up split-screen images showing what was actually happening in those where the, the, the victims were and what FEMA was saying was happening and the boats and buses started to come in the next day. We do a lot of work with the Orlando Magic, and the president of the Orlando Magic told me on, that on Sunday of that week they're going to fly to Bat Baton Rouge for two days, and the first evacuees coming out of New Orleans were going to Baton Rouge. So we went there, and I said, as, as I said, I went there as an angry person until we entered the churches where the, the victims were being kept and sheltered. And it was this, it was the church, one of the churches that you saw on television all the time, and you walk in and you see. Mattresses, cots, people lying on the floor, eyes glazed over, hopeless, hapless, not knowing what their future holds, knowing everything in their lives has been completely wiped out by this monster storm and the aftermath of the storm. And suddenly they saw the Orlando Magic. And this is among the things that we talk about. There's something about sport, the power of sport. Suddenly they saw the Orlando Magic in the front of the church. They weren't Magic fans. They got up, started moving toward us. And you see all of a sudden that they're wearing Saints t-shirts, they're wearing Tulane t-shirts, they're wearing Hornets t-shirts and Saints caps. The articles of clothing they were wearing at the time the storm hit because they just literally were taken to the convention center of the Superdome and found their way there. They were about to get fresh clothes, but these were the clothes that they were wearing. They care about sports. They cared that the Orlando Magic, who had that they had probably had no interest in before that day, were in this church being there to help them. So we spent two days doing whatever we could do. And I'll always remember at the end of the second day, I was talking to the pastor of the church and to Alex Martins, who's the president of the Magic. And there was a wall about the size of from here to the wall on the other side. And on that wall, there were five cots or mattresses uh, of what looked like five nuclear African-American families to me. And in the middle of the wall was an older woman who was talking to a long line of people who kept gathering in front of her. So I asked the pastor who she was, and he said her name is Ida Johnson. She's 106 years old, and that was five generations of her family on either side of where she was sitting. So I went up to Ms. Johnson, and got in line, and went up and said, I don't know what to her at this point, but I'll never forget what Ms. Johnson said to me. Now, this isn't her yet. This is me. We know all of her family lived in the Lower Ninth Ward. Every single home in the Lower Ninth Ward where the majority of the African-American people lived was uninhabitable. All of her family's homes were gone. This is Miss. This is Ida. God is good. That's all she said. God is good. How do you have that perspective at that moment in your lifetime? 
So I stepped back and I talked to her daughter who was 87. And she said to me, this was the day my mother got hope because the Orlando Magic were here. It didn't, she didn't care about the Orlando Magic. She wasn't a basketball fan in, in this particular case, but she knew that their presence meant that other people were gonna come. And other people have come. If you don't know, it's been the largest volunteer effort in the history of the United States. It's 10 years later. Uh, but we decided that we were gonna do something about it. And we've gone down with the DeVos Sport Business Management Program and other student athletes from around the country and have now spent uh, we just, our group just came back this past week from spring break, 47 weeks in New Orleans, having worked on 125 homes. And I've done a lot of things in my lifetime that I'm thrilled to have been part of, but nothing has had more meaning to me than being able to work shoulder to shoulder with my wife, Anne, and with Emily and all of our students in the DeVos program. Uh, just seeing the incredible resilience of the people of New Orleans and the power to overcome obstacles that have happened. There are other social justice issues that I just want to touch on. Um, you know, we've entering the last year of Barack Obama's administration. When he ran for president, there were 600 hate groups in the United States. As he exits office, there'll be 892 hate groups in the United States. It had gone down for a while, but it spiked up again this year. 19% of those hate crimes, by the way, are religious hate, are religious crimes. 58% involved anti-Semitism and 16% involved anti-Muslim activities. Our children have learned how to hate. They're also waging war on one another. A child is killed with a handgun every two hours in the United States, a child under the age of 16. 400,000 high school students are taken to the emergency room every year because of a violent act that took place on their high school property during high school hours. 2,000 Children are reported missing every day. The high school dropout rate in urban America is 40%. The poverty gap has grown since the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement to today, and the wealth gap is bigger than it ever was in the United States. If you can possibly get your arms around this statistics, statistic, the wealth gap between white people in this country and African Americans in this country today is greater than it was between white people and African people in South Africa during the height of apartheid. Now, if you don't know about apartheid, that much might not have as much resonance with you, but that's an amazing statistic. Here's another one. The Forbes list of the 100 wealthiest Americans are worth, the Forbes list of the 100 wealthiest of, Ameri of Americans are worth as much as all 42 million African Americans wealth combined. Try to absorb that. Now, there are some African Americans in that list, but that doesn't counter what I just said. The life expectancy for the bottom 10% of male wagers, er, male wage earners in the United States is 73% for those with the lowest income. The life expectancy for those in the top 10% is 87 years. In other words, if you're rich, you have a life expectancy of 14 years greater than if you were working at a lower level income. The black infant mortality rate is twice what it is for white, for white babies. Men's violence against women, 1.3 million American women battered every year, 900,000 raped, 34% of teenage girls will have a baby before they reach the age of 20. When researchers ask them, why did you take that risk? The almost universal response that they give is, I wanted somebody to love me. They didn't feel loved at that point in their lives, so they brought this other person into their lives. We're the biggest consumers of drugs in the world. The biggest consumers of drugs in the United States are people under the age of 25. Why do you take a drug? Presumably you think you feel better with it than you did without it. 
We're the, the biggest consumers of performance-enhancing drugs are not NFL players, Major League Baseball players, or track and field athletes. They're teenage boys under the age of 16 who aren't athletes at all, who feel so frail on their self-image that they take this substance to make them stronger, faster, whatever it is that they think God didn't endow, endow them with. Child abuse, the Penn State story, made it a major news story several years ago, and we focused on the victims of Jerry Sandusky. But I want you to understand that I hope that our lesson from that story is that there's a report of child abuse made every 10 seconds in the United States, and only one in 10 cases of child abuse are ever reported. Emily's gonna talk at length about the issue of human trafficking, but your athletic director, Mark, talked about the, the um, depth of it in the United States, uh, that it's not just um, something that happens overseas, so this is a list, and I'm not going to read it to you, but this is a list of 25 cities where there have been incidents of human trafficking reported in the last 15 days in the United States. Philadelphia is one of them. There are three cities in the state of Pennsylvania on this list, not over the past decade, in the last 15 days. During the hour that we're going to be here with you tonight, if it's a typical hour, this would have happened. 138 children would have dropped out of school. 46 high school students would have been victimized by violence. A child under the age of 16 was killed by a handgun, 83 children were reported missing, 876 children died of a preventable disease, 46 babies were born to a teenage mother, 3,600 children were abused, 516 women and girls were battered, 124 women were enslaved, women and girls were enslaved. That's what's happened, that's what will have happened by the time you leave here tonight on this beautiful campus to think about as a perspective what's going on around the world. We wanted to be here because you're leaders. We wanted to be here because we believe that the power of sport is like no other, that as student athletes, you have an influence on other people. And I just want to close by, by sharing with you what I, I consider the, the thing that brings us together in the world of sport that gives us that power when we uh, attract young people to whatever it is we have to say. And it's the miracle of sport for me, it's the huddle. I can't think of any other place in this country or in this world where suddenly when you get in that huddle, it doesn't matter if you're African American or white or Latino or Asian American, Native American or Arab American, it doesn't matter if you're Protestant, Buddhist, Sikh, Jew, Hindu or Muslim, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, gay or straight, come from a rich family or a poor family, we all know in this room that you can't win if the team doesn't pull together. Imagine if we bring that attitude into all the other avenues of our life, into the institution itself of higher education, to corporate America, to our faith organizations, what a different world this would be. I root for NOVA the rest of the week wholeheartedly and the rest of the month, but I also root for you as warriors for social justice in the years ahead. Thank you so much for listening. much, Dr. Lapchik. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. Um, at this time, I'd like to introduce Emily Pasnick Lapchik. She is the End Trafficking Officer at the U.S. Fund for UNICEF, where she leads a national awareness and advocacy campaign about child trafficking, reaching over about 55,000 constituents each year. She manages the creation of resources, in-person and online training, development of partnerships, and the creation of public service announcements. Emily is a member of the core group for the NGO Committee to Stop Trafficking in Persons and serves as the U.S. Representative 
for gift box on behalf of the stop the traffic. She was honored as a new abolitionist in 2016. Previously, she served as the end trafficking fellow at the U.S. Fund for UNICEF, where she helped to build a brand, brand new awareness campaign such as this, um, Stop Human Trafficking Week at Villanova, um, to end trafficking and engaged over 10,000 people in person on the issue of trafficking. Through her work, she has spoken uh, on CNN International at the United Nations and international conferences and has worked with dozens of groups on how they can take action against human trafficking. We're so happy to have Emily with us here tonight and throughout the week of advocacy. At this time, I'd like to welcome Emily to the stage. Good evening, and thank you for having me here today. We're really excited to kick off Shut Out Trafficking at Villanova University and to bring awareness to an issue that I believe is one of the worst human rights violations of our time, and that's human trafficking. For those of you who don't know, human trafficking in its broadest sense is exploitation. It's the buying and selling of human beings as if they were commodities, and it's been likened to modern day slavery. It's estimated that 21 million people around the world today are victims of human trafficking, and that 5.5 million of them are children. People are enslaved and trafficked in brick kilns and carpet looms, in houses as domestic slaves, on the streets as child beggars, and wars as child soldiers, in traveling sales crews, restaurants, hotels, brothels, escort services, strip clubs, massage parlors, and more. Many of these victims are hidden in plain sight, but our hope is that after this week, you will be able to see them. Human trafficking exists on the principles of supply and demand. There's a large demand for cheap goods, which creates a demand for cheap labor, and for commercial sex. And unfortunately, anywhere where a large demand exists, someone will be there willing to meet it with a supply, even at the expense of another human being. This large demand has made human trafficking the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. And to give you a sense of just how large it is, human trafficking reaps profits of $150 billion a year. Take a moment to think about that, that right now in 2016, selling a human being to another human being on a global scale makes these profits. Two-thirds of those profits come from the commercial sex industry, and most of those profits are made in industrialized nations like the United States, a place that we're so proud to be a part of. During the height of the transatlantic slave trade more than 200 years ago, the average price for a slave adjusted for today's currency was between $40,000 and $50,000. Today, the average price is $90. $90 is the value that we put on a human life. Now one of the most prevalent forms of trafficking around the world today is known as debt bondage. This is the process by which a family or an individual takes out a small loan, often for basic necessities such as food or perhaps medicine for a small child. If they're unable to pay that loan back, their labor is demanded as a means of repayment. Once they're in this debt, they lose all control over their working conditions, they're often not paid, and they're often abused. So I want to take you to Pakistan, where millions of people are exploited in this way. The man pictured here was doing everything that he could to help his sister. Her kidneys were failing, and the family was trying to raise money. They tried raising money, they sold their cattle, they sold their property, they sold everything that they had. 
And ultimately, he had no other choice. And he turned to a local brick kiln where he wanted to take out a loan for 5,000 rupees, or about 50 US dollars, thinking that after just a few weeks of working at the brick kiln, he could easily pay off this loan. When he thought that it was time to leave, the kiln owners told him, you lived in our house, you ate our food, you now owe us 11,000 rupees. You have 11,000 rupees, you can pay us and leave. If not, get back to work. They began to work him harder, and he was never paid for his work. And several months later, his grandfather passed away. He asked for just a few days off to make arrangements for the funeral. The brick owners promptly told him that he now owed 30,000 rupees, and unless he paid it, he couldn't leave. He now owes 350,000 rupees, or $3,500, 70 times the original amount of money that he borrowed. His sister has passed away, and he fears that there's no way out. He's convinced that he's stuck, and fears that his child and other children who have been born into this form of slavery will also be trapped. Millions of people around the world today are enslaved in this way. Human trafficking is a high-profit, low-risk business. Traffickers stand to make a lot of money and are rarely prosecuted for their crimes. Do we not think it's absurd that in the United States, we know that when an adult has sex with a child, that child is automatically considered a victim of rape? But did you know that in most states in our country, the second money exchanges hands or a transaction is made, suddenly that child's considered a hooker or a prostitute and is arrested for prostitution? rather than being treated as a victim? This is unacceptable, but everyone in this room has the power to do something about it. When most people hear about human trafficking, we think of it as something that's happening over there, possibly in countries in Africa, Asia, maybe even Eastern Europe, but I want to tell you a few stories to highlight the truth about this issue. In Denver, a 13-year-old girl and her best friend are pimped out to gang members by her drug-addicted mother. In Orlando, two dozen teens are recruited to work on a traveling sales crew. They soon find themselves working 10-hour days with no food, no water, and no pay. They fear retaliation from crew leaders if they leave. In Pennsylvania, a 14-year-old girl runs away from home. Her mother's boyfriends had been sexually abusing her, and she's just had enough. A really handsome older man approaches her on the street and offers her a place to stay, takes her out for a nice meal. Eventually, he starts taking her out on more dates, taking her shopping at the mall, and she starts to consider him her boyfriend. And after several months of this courtship, suddenly he says, oh, I'm having a lot of trouble paying rent. Would you mind just helping me out? And she says, of course. He's taken her under her wing, he's told her that he loved her, and she's really happy. But she doesn't realize that what helping him out means is sleeping with strange men for money. And he promises her it'll just be this one time, just work in this strip club for this one night and then it will be over. But of course it's not just one time. And this 14-year-old girl in your state continues to be exploited, sold to dozens of men every day, every week, for years. Now this is the reality, not in statistics, not in numbers, but in lives. This is just a glimpse into what's happening throughout our country. And to give you an idea of just how badly it's manifesting, I want to tell you a little bit about what's happening right here in Pennsylvania. 
In 2015, the human trafficking hotline received 514 calls from Pennsylvania alone, leading to 106 human trafficking cases. That's almost nine cases every month. Of these reports, 75% were for sex trafficking, 14% were labor trafficking, six concerned both forms of trafficking, and the rest were unspecified. The top venues and industries where trafficking is being identified in your state are domestic servitude, hostess and strip club work, agriculture, transportation, and restaurants and food services. For sex trafficking, it includes commercial front brothels, online advertisements, residential brothels, and hotel and motel based. 89% of the victims reported were female, 67% were US citizens, and 23% were children. Now it's important to note that these statistics are just based on reports, so they're not necessarily representative of the full scope of what trafficking looks like in your state. But I wanted to give you a sense of what you should be looking for within your own community. Now these statistics and stories are from just a few cities and just a few states. So try to imagine how this is unfolding across our nation and across our world. Within the United States, most runaway groups estimate that within 48 hours, one in three children is solicited for sex. So do we even want to think about what happens in the following days, weeks, months, and years? This is unacceptable, but all of you have the power to do something about it. Now this problem might seem overwhelming when we talk about the scope of it, when we talk about the fact that it's happening in every single state in our country and in most countries around the world. So I want to share a few stories and models about things that are working on a global scale. I want to start with the Nordic model. In 1999, Sweden passed this, and it took a three-fold approach to addressing the issue of sex trafficking and prostitution. And it did it from a human rights-based lens. The first thing it did was decriminalize the selling of sex so that people in prostitution were no longer criminalized and increase penalties for pimps, brothel keepers, and the buyers of sex. Second, it created public awareness campaigns to educate the public on the fact that if they bought sex, these are the penalties that you'll face. But third and most importantly, it created comprehensive exit strategies for people in prostitution, whether they had been trafficked or not, to wipe their criminal records, to receive job training, and to leave an industry and a life that they've been victimized by for so long. The results that Sweden have seen have been remarkable. Street prostitution has nearly, has extremely decreased and Sweden's become an, in, an undesirable place for traffickers. Police intercept phone calls with traffickers saying, don't bother going to Sweden, there's no money to be made there. The law has also influenced attitudes towards buying sex, and in just 10 years, the number of male sex buyers dropped from 13.6% to 7.9%. So think about what will happen when generations are born into a society that says it's not okay to buy sex. And where similar initiatives have been implemented in the United States, we've seen street prostitution drop by up to 75%. Since the 1980s, UNICEF has been working in more than 150 countries around the world to protect children from violence, exploitation, and abuse. UNICEF works to train governments, law enforcement officials, border patrol officials, social service providers, and healthcare providers to recognize the signs of child trafficking victims and to be able to respond in a child-friendly way. UNICEF works in partnership with governments, NGOs, and the leaders on the ground to address these issues. 
UNICEF's deems tens of thousands of children who have been forced to fight in conflicts around the world and creates child-friendly spaces where children can start to play again after experiencing a natural disaster or conflict such as the earthquake in Nepal. In these child-friendly spaces, they're also safe from the preying eyes of traffickers. And UNICEF has worked with partners for decades on the issue of child labor. Reduced, leading to the reduction of one-third since 2000, from 286 million to 168 million. Right here in the United States, we've also seen solutions that are working. And when I was first learning about this issue back in 2011, I was in college in Florida, and I was able to visit a place called Immokalee, Florida. Most of you have never heard of it because it's in the middle of nowhere. And when I went there, what I saw shocked me. This was a place where migrant farm workers were, being, were picking the tomatoes that we eat in our grocery stores and the oranges that make the lovely orange juice that we like to drink. But what I started to realize was that there was one family that owned all of the farmland, they employed all of the workers, they owned all of the housing, they owned all of the stores. So they not only controlled the wages that the workers were making, but they controlled how much they paid for rent which led to 15 men living in a trailer together. They controlled how much they paid for their food, so they hiked up the food prices, trapping these workers in a cycle of poverty and slavery. But when I was there, I also met what's known as the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. They were an incredible group who was educating the farm workers on their basic human rights in the United States and mobilizing them to stand up for themselves. And what they created was known as the Penny More Per Pound Program. What this does is mobilize consumers, just like everyone in this room, to advocate to corporations such as Walmart, Subway, Taco Bell, to pay just a penny more per pound for tomatoes, which would result in farm workers' wages being more than doubled. And their wages hadn't been raised in over 30 years. This program has been so successful that over 11 multi-billion dollar companies have signed on to it, and it's completely transformed how workers are treated in the fields of Florida. And this is the label that you can now find on tomatoes in Walmart, which is one of the largest corporations in the world, helping to end modern day slavery in our own country. So while we've come a long way, we have not come nearly far enough. And not nearly enough countries and cities are taking a stance against violence, against gender equality, such as Sweden has done. One in three children under the age of 15 out of the 700 million women alive today were married as children. Although the number of children in labor has been significantly reduced, over 85% of these children still work in hazardous conditions, in dangerous factories that threaten to cut off their limbs or in agriculture where they're exposed to harmful pesticides. So I'm here today to challenge all of you to take the baton, to take the lead in advancing the rights of children, women, and men all around the world. This starts with your friends, your families, your teammates, and the values that you instill in one another. The conversations you have about gender equality and human rights. I believe you'll be pleased to see the ripple effect that your words have on the world, spreading further and further until you might not even be able to see the effects anymore, but you can know that they're still happening. So I'm here to challenge you to do something about it. Progress is slow, but it does happen. This is not a battle that we're gonna win overnight. It's not as simple as vaccinating a child or providing clean water. These are long battles of social change that we're gonna be fighting. But it wasn't that long ago that we had separate drinking fountains 
and it wasn't that long ago that women couldn't vote. We should all be treated with respect. We all deserve the same rights. No one should be objectified and no one should be exploited. Yet millions of children, women, and men all around the world are being enslaved and exploited right now. Every 30 seconds, another person becomes a victim of human trafficking. So that means that in the time we spend here tonight, close to 150 people will be trafficked. And in the four days that we spend conducting the Shut Up Trafficking program here at Villanova this week, over 11,500 people will be trafficked. This is unacceptable, but you have the power to do something about it. I've chosen to make this my life's work, and in 2012, the US Fund for UNICEF launched the End Trafficking Project. Our goals are to educate communities such as yourselves on the issue of trafficking, but most importantly, to mobilize you to take action against it. We've created lots of resources, such as the ones that you saw on your way in here today. We do in-person and online training so communities understand what to look for and how to report it. And we also do advocacy work to make sure that the proper legislation is in place here in the United States to protect children. And while I've made this an integral part of my life, you can make this a part of your life, but perhaps in a different way. Here's one thing that everyone in this room can do. Learn the signs to end human trafficking. As you came in here, you will have seen one of these postcards on the table. I mentioned how many calls had come from the state of Pennsylvania. Most of those calls do not come from human trafficking experts like me, do not come from survivors or victims of human trafficking. They come from community members. People like you in this room who saw something suspicious and took a moment to report it. So take that card with you, learn these signs, and put this phone number into your phone. It's the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and it's open 24-7, completely confidential, and they have multiple language interpreters. You are part of the key to ending this crime, to identifying this crime, and to making sure that traffickers are held accountable and that people who have survived this crime have access to the services that they need. Use your voice. That's something that everyone in this room can do. Advocate for legislation. If you're a student athlete, talk to your coaches, talk to your fellow athletes about this issue and how you can use your platform as a student athlete to help bring awareness to it. If you're an artist, you can do a piece on trafficking. If you enjoy writing, write an article for your school newspaper. If you enjoy public speaking, you can do a presentation in one of your classes on trafficking. Host or attend a screening. Tomorrow night, we're having a film screening here on campus, but if you're unable to make it, we have free copies of the film that you can also show in other parts of your school or your communities. Advocate for human trafficking. I shared that the girl who was exploited here in Pennsylvania had run away from an abusive home. Many runaway and homeless youth in this country become extremely vulnerable to both sex and labor trafficking. And right now, we're advocating for this piece of legislation to pass to help protect those children. We've already had over 40,000 people write to their representatives, and we'd love to have your voice as well. Vote with your dollar. As I mentioned, a lot of the products that we buy are created by slave labor, whether we like it or not. The clothes that we wear, the technology that I'm using for this presentation right now and you use every day in your lives, the food that we eat, the jewelry that we wear, a lot of that is connected to slave labor. So you can become a conscious consumer and vote with your dollar by buying products that were made by people who live in a free world. 
And these are some fair trade certification and labels that you can look for on products like chocolate, coffee, and tea in order to be able to identify those products. Join or start a UNICEF club at your school. We work all throughout the country with over 500 UNICEF clubs to educate communities on these issues. And there's, one of, like, there's a UNICEF club here at Villanova. And finally, join our shutout trafficking programs for the rest of the week. We're gonna be here doing lots of other programming so you can continue learning about the issue, learn about how you can take action and influence change. The possibilities are truly endless. Right here in this room, we already have the basis for a network of advocates. You all are leaders, you are mentors, and you have the power to change lives. So I challenge you to use that power, not only to influence the lives of those in your own community, but of children, women, and men all throughout the world. Thank you. Do you want to stay up here for Q&A? No. Um. I'm going to have, um, let's do one more round of applause for Dr. Lapchick and Emily. I'm going to have them come just stand right up. Do you guys want to stand right here? Does anyone have any questions for them? Does anyone have any questions for Dr. Lapchick or Emily? Any questions about the events um, that are taking place throughout the week? Oh, go ahead. How did you get your foot in the door with civil rights? Is that the question? How did I get, get my foot in the door with civil rights? Um, it had a lot to do with my dad uh, and what he did with the Knicks and my sister's activities. Um, it had a lot to do with meeting Kareem at that early age and, and becoming friends with him. But I think um, the biggest uh, they opened my eyes, but then I saw there was a possibility for action, and I was seeing uh, people who were active uh, leading to change. So I wanted to be part of bringing about that change. Um, I didn't know what it was going to look like. Uh, I didn't, in the beginning, think I would ever end up in the world of sport throughout the, my adult life. But I saw that as the platform eventually, because of the reaction of people to my dad so negatively, and then after I was attacked, they, reaction people had to me. I assumed that if people went to that length to try to stop my father and myself, that they must have thought we were doing something important. So that, I think, gave me the incentive to want to continue to do that. And I'll respond as well. I mean, I was obviously very influenced by my father as well. And my mom isn't up here speaking today, but was also a huge influence on me. And I think I was always exposed to social justice issues as a kid. And when I was in high school, actually, I learned about children in armed conflict. And I'm smiling because my childhood friend, who is now at Villanova, her and I used to like do awareness at school together. And now we're working on this program together, which is just kind of cool, full circle, full circle thing. But learning about um, children who are being forced into armed conflict who were my age and were oftentimes forced to kill their own parents, that was really horrific for me. Uh, and when I went to college, I actually went to be a marine biologist. I wanted to swim with dolphins, but through a series of events that happened, social justice was something that I just couldn't get away from. So I started taking a variety of courses and ultimately 
Um, I took a course on human trafficking and to learn more about children in armed conflict. And didn't learn anything about that, but learned about all the other forms of trafficking. And it was shocking to me that I was you know, 19 or 20 and had never heard of the fact that slavery was not only happening around the world, but was happening in my own backyard. And I just felt compelled to do something about it. So I started attending conferences and just learning more about how I could get involved. And I think um, I'm also a very shy, introverted person. So public speaking was not something that I naturally thought I would do. But because it was something I became so passionate about, it just became a natural path for me. And I think one of the things, as you mentioned as well, was there are so many horrific issues, but there are also so many incredible groups who are doing something about it. So visiting Immokalee, that, that place in Florida, and having that human rights organization, and then seeing what UNICEF and other organizations did really gave me hope. And meeting students like you who come out on a rainy night to attend this event and learn more also gives me hope that we can create change. So I think um, no matter how small or large a part of your life you want to dedicate to it, there's really a role that you can play no matter what. Other questions? This is for Richard. <laughs> Did you ultimately take the lie detector test, or did you pass? So, this is my wife asking this question. In case, in case there was any uh, clarification that was needed, she asked if I ultimately took the lie detector test, and did I pass? Uh, you heard me say I refused to take it. Um, I then went back to, the matches were going to be at Na in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so I went back there to try to get the focus back on South Africa, and I realized nobody cared anymore whether South Africa was coming. It was, did Lapchik do it, didn't Lapchik do it. So I flew to Washington, D.C., had an FBI operative privately administer a lie detector test, which I passed, and flew to New York City and had the New York City medical examiner examine the, the wounds, uh, and we released those to the public um, several weeks after the attack. But thank you for that. My wife, has, I don't think, has ever asked me a question before, so that's <laughs> I meet it in a public forum. Every night, no doubt. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, go ahead. It's a great question. So in case anyone couldn't hear, the question was, do I see the US and other nations taking a similar stance to Sweden in terms of addressing prostitution and sex trafficking? Yes, there have been several. It's now called the Nordic model rather than the Swedish model because a lot of Nordic countries have taken on that stance. Uh, and there's also a movement in the United States that was just launched within the last year or two called the Cease Network. And what it is led by an organization called Demand Abolition, and it's a 12 cities have been selected, and the goal is to build a coalition in each of those cities throughout the country to reduce demand by 20% in two years. And, and now they're looking to identify other cities to do that as well. And each city does it in a different way, but it's trying to model the Swedish model and the Nordic model and bring it to the United States. So there have definitely been efforts, and I think it's something that we need to continue pressuring our governments and our leadership to do, because it, we have seen it be effective, whereas the full-out legalization of prostitution, as it's happened in Germany, has been devastating, and trafficking has increased, and you basically make traffickers, pimps, and brothel keepers legitimate businessmen. So there's definitely a movement happening in the U.S., and it's uh, Cease Network, if you want to look it up online. Another question? Go ahead. Uh, how do you 
Yeah, so the question is how much, it, how much are gender issues related to the issue of human trafficking? I think it's huge, especially when we look at sex trafficking. And I do want to say that boys and men are also trafficked into the commercial sex trade, although it's overwhelmingly women. Um, and I think that's a huge part of it. And we see that, you know, you were talking about sexual assault and the number of women. As long as men and society, really, it's not just men, view women as an object to be bought and sold or even just an object to be looked at in a sexual way and not recognized for all of the other wonderful things that women represent and do, then I think we'll continue, continue to see this perpetuate. The other thing that I want to address is that it's not just the objectification of women and girls, it's also this construction of masculinity that affects how men feel that they have to to work in the world. So I think there, we have to address those issues simultaneously. They're, they're so interconnected, we can't separate the two. And the other thing that I'll say is women are also trafficked into labor trafficking. And I've heard lots of survivors and leaders in the field say that it doesn't, whether or not someone is sexually assaulted, it doesn't matter whether they're being trafficked for sex or labor, it matters whether they're a woman. So a lot of times, even if women are in domestic servitude or agriculture or being trafficked into a, a field of labor, they're still sexually abused through that process as well. Did I answer your question? Okay. And I'd just like to add on to that, that one of the things I usually say, because I talk about listening to different voices, is that I don't have any doubt that if there were more women and people of color in charge of what's happening in our country today, that all the social justice issues I talked about would be addressed head on as opposed to listen to the presidential elections about what the issues are or not. It's not about those social justice issues. And for example, Sweden has a, it's very like gender rights focused and they have been for so many years. So it allowed for that system to be put into place a lot more easily than it might happen in, in the United States. So it's definitely a root cause. Any other questions? Well, I want to thank you guys so much for being here tonight. Um, as Emily said, we have a week-long series of events um, tonight, tomorrow night, and Wednesday. All three are ACS approved, so if you need to continue to go to events, tomorrow night's documentary will um, highlight the, um, the global scope of human trafficking and the panel discussion, which is being hosted on Wednesday over at the law school at 5.30 p.m., will address um, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia's response to human trafficking in our area. And we have a really cool panel of speakers signed up. So I hope that you attend. Let's give our speakers another round of applause.